Hello, you are listening to The Expository Word, where Kimber Kaufman is teaching verse-by-verse through Philippians. Some have said Philippians is one of the most encouraging books of the New Testament, and we trust you will enjoy listening and learning from this book. Thank you for joining us today on The Expository Word. Let's listen now to Kimber. In our verse-by-verse study of Philippians, we've gotten sidetracked. Because we started contemplating from verse 16 of chapter 2 of Philippians, the Bema Seat Judgment. Paul said his whole desire was that the Philippians would grow so that he would not have run or labored in vain. Now stay there, and we'll get to Hebrews 11 in just a minute. But allow me to say this, and I've pounded it out again and again, but it is absolutely essential that you hear this. Do you know, friends, that all theology is practical? As soon as you use the word theology or doctrine, a lot of people automatically go impractical. As if, as if your theology does not relate to everyday living. In fact, I would say this. Theology is not good, sound theology unless it affects your life. It's got to have an impact upon our life. Just to sit around in some ivory tower experience and to talk about and theorize about something really doesn't help us if in everyday living it doesn't cause us to be more like Christ. I went to school with friends and they loved to contemplate some of these deep truths. The only thing is they lived like the devil. But they loved to sit around and make fun of Christians who were so simple-minded and believed something inferior to them. I'll tell you something. We, may God save us from such an attitude. But you know, if there was ever a place where theology should affect our life, you know where it is? It's when it comes to understanding the judgment. When it comes to understanding the fact that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Do you know that the fact that we have to stand before God and give an answer of our lives should have a major impact upon the way we live? It should have impacted the way you came to church this morning. It should impact the way you treat your wife. It should impact the way you treat people you work with. It should influence every single thing you do. In fact, let me say this to you. I believe in my study of the New Testament, that the greatest motivation in Paul's life was the Bema Seat Judgment. I think it was more of a motivation than even his love for Christ. I think it was more of a, more of a motivation than his fear of God. I think as you study, and you just list verse by verse, how many times does Paul refer to what motivated him? You know what it was? The fact that he would have to give an answer one day before God. That motivated him. Now, I say that because do you know what is the, one of the most unmotivating thoughts in all of Christendom this day? It's the fact that you're going to stand and give account of your life before God. People sort of go, ugh! And it, it, it's, it, it, it's something so distasteful. And it's like, oh, let's don't really bring that up, please. My friends, do you know that Jesus talked about the fact that your life should be lived in light of the fact that you're going to give an account to Him one day? He talks about it over and over and over and over. I can't even get over how many times He talks about it. It's amazing when you consider in light of the New Testament. And yet, most people think this. Oh, the judgments? uh, That has to do for the lost going to hell. What, are you going to give us a hellfire and brimstone message? Well, first off, there's nothing wrong with that because Jesus gave those messages and the prophets gave those messages and everybody that, that was called by God to preach gave those messages. But my point is, no, I'm saying this. Yes, there is something to be feared. Yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, there is messages of repent. And John the Baptist said, repent. And Jesus said, repent. But you know what else, friends? There's also a motivational message for Christians. It should help us live 
the Christian life. As we've gotten turned on to this, there's been an evolutionary process in my life concerning this. But I want to tell you, this week, as I have just focused on the Bema Seat, I have felt as though I have never read the Bible before. As I open it up, I see things that have absolutely, I've wondered, where have I been all my life? How come I've never heard people teach on this? How come I haven't seen this? How come I haven't taught on this like I should have? And I say it now at the beginning, we must understand this because it's important. Listen carefully. Salvation from God is by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and not by any works that we have done. We know we're talking about the fact that the gospel message is it has nothing to do with your works. It has to do with what Christ has done for you. But please consider this. And that is this, the scripture talks about the great judgments, one for believers, one for non-believers. Marty, could I have the middle lights, please? Now, let's just go over this quickly. Two great judgments, one for Christians, one for non-Christians. Look here. The Christians, it has to do with heaven. The non-Christians, they're going to go to hell. This one you could call the Bema. This one we'll call the great white, well, here it is, Bema, the great white throne. And what happens is, Appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. Here you die, and you're either going to go, depending on what you have done with Jesus Christ in your life, to stand before God to give account of your life for the works that you have done in the body as a Christian, or if you don't have Christ, you stand before God, your ultimate destination is hell. Now this is a very basic breakdown of what we're talking about today, but let me just take it another step further in clarification. If we had to break this down a little bit farther, we could say this. One judgment is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Revelation 20 talks about this. The other is the Bema Judgment. It's in the Greek. It's going to be in the English. And there are some references there referring to the Bema Judgment. Notice again, one is for believers. The other is for unbelievers. And notice something else, and this is important. The purpose. The Bema Judgment, it has to do with rewards or loss of rewards. The great white throne judgment has to do with degrees of punishment in hell. Now, we talked about this last week, and again, the destiny, heaven or hell, and the means, the book of remembrance, or the book of works. Now, before we go even any farther, I want to review something to you. Last week, we considered the great white throne judgment as we sort of took this sidetrack. And and by the way, we'll be at least another week on the Bema Seat, possibly two more weeks. I usually don't do this, if you know, we're usually we stay right with the text, but this has been absolutely captivating to me, and hopefully it's going to be tremendously the same for you. Now notice next, the Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and this is quick review from last week, it was based on works, it will be based on works, and notice the criterion for judgment. What is the criterion? As unbelievers stand before a holy God, what will be the criterion of judgment as to, as to the degrees of punishment in hell? You know, do you know that a lot of people didn't even know that there were degrees of punishment in hell? They say, what do you mean degrees of punishment? Isn't sin, sin, and hell the same for everybody? Jesus clearly says things different than that. For instance, one is this. The amount of truth known and rejected. The amount of truth that is known and rejected. Jesus says things like this. Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have remained until this day he says, it would have been much more bearable. Excuse me, it's going to be much more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. Why? Because so much light has been given to you. The same thing in Romans chapter 1. 
as we suppress the truth and hide the truth. And we said, if you remember from last week, it would be much better to go to hell from some country in which the gospel has never been preached than it would be to go to hell from the United States of America with all the rejection of light that, that must take place when you live in this country. Notice something else. The kinds of sin you commit. The scripture says there are different sins that are more repulsive to God than others. Now, a lot of people didn't know that either, but yet that is clearly taught in the scriptures. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, he talks to the Pharisees, and he says, oh, uh, he, just, he just tears into the Pharisees. In fact, so I don't just butcher it up, I'm going to read it to you real quickly. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, he says this. He says, Excuse me, that's Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. He says the same thing in Matthew 2, but wrong passage. Let me read to you quickly. Mark 12, 38 through 40. He says this to them. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, to be greeted in the marketplace, to have the most important seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Now guess what he says after all that. Now listen. Such men will be punished most severely. Most severely. So one sin that actually is condemned as one of the worst sins is this, being a Pharisee. Having external outward religion, condemning everybody else. Being Pharisaical. Do you know, it says in Matthew 21 that it would be better to be a harlot on the day of judgment than it would be to be a Pharisee. Isn't that interesting? How about this? Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 talks about sexual sins talks about idolatry, talks about these types of sins, and it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Something else. Causing little children to sin. He says, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung about your neck than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. What's he talking about? Man, there's something severe about causing a child to sin. We better wake up and realize that. The illustration is this. I told you last week I ran a traffic light accidentally. In complete innocence, with a pure heart, if you can remember. Uh, I Actually, I stopped at the light for about 20 seconds. My buddy went like this. I thought he meant the light changed, and I went through the light. Please stop me, just like that. $55 ticket. And we're going to have a special offering, as I think I said in the past, to take care of that. But you know what? There it was. Yet, in the last week, or the week that happened, actually it was two weeks ago, there was a man arrested in Indianapolis for sexually molesting his daughter to such a degree that she died. Two-year-old daughter. Now, what if the police came to the door and gave that man a $55 ticket? We would say, unjust! Unfair! What if they took me for running the stoplight and gave me three life sentences? Hopefully you'd come down and try to help me out. <laughs> see? So we see also that the kinds of sins you commit should be rewarded accordingly. And then lastly, this, the number of sins one commits. And that is this. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches this, by the way, that in Romans 2.5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And the word storing up there means you're putting into an account. You're putting into a bank account all that will take place on those days. So that's a quick review of the great white throne judgment. But let's now consider, and that's for unbelievers, that's for people that have never repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But now let's do something else. Let's focus upon the Bema judgment, the judgment 
for believers. Now, actually, the Greek word bima, when it refers to the judgment of believers, is found in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all give account of ourselves before the judgment seat of Christ for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, and Romans 14.10, why do you judge your brother? For we must all give account of ourselves before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Those two places, actually in the Greek language, it says bima, seat of Christ. Actually, the bima, it means judgment seat of Christ. But many other places, many other places, is it implied. In fact, I want you to know something. It is implied so many places that this is the part I felt like a kid in a candy shop for the first time. As I turn the pages of the scripture, I'm absolutely astonished at how much the Bible talks about the way the Bema Seat should influence our lives. And one of the greatest goals I have for you, my friends, is this. Not to beat you down, always preaching on judgment, oh man, and when you sit there and you just sort of leave, oh, you know, life's so terrible, I'm going to have to have this terrible judgment one day. No! Paul was motivated by it. Do you think if the God who loved you while you were an enemy of his... The God who, who, who reconciled you to himself when you were at enmity with him, that he's going to bring you up as his dearly beloved child on the day of judgment and boo and whistle and knock you down and say you're no good and make it some terrible thing? No. But at the same time, there should be a fear in our hearts that we will give an answer and find out really who we were, bottom line, really what our ministry was worth, really what our life was like, really if God was pleased with us. We'll find out on that day. So there's that fine balance between understanding his love and understanding his fear. But what I want you to see is this. Do you know that the beam of judgment is so foundational to your life that it is the very basis of your faith? Did you know that? Look at Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6, the famous verse that we quote when we said, what is the definition of faith? We always quote verse 1. Now faith is the substance of, being, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then we get to verse 6. Here's one of the most popular verses. And yet, in the middle of it is the Bema seat. Look here. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that, get this, He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, do you know what? I always thought in my life that had to do with present-day life. You know, it goes like this. See, hey, if you seek God with all your heart and devotions, he's going to reward you and bless your life. Now, you know what? That is true. I'm not saying that is not the case. But I want you to know that the context of Hebrews 11 and the whole setting of Hebrews is this. Don't let go of your faith. Hang on. Keep encouraging one another. Don't give up because there's a great day coming in which you will be glad you did. A day of reward It is all in light of and illuminating and pointing towards the famous seat. By the way, it's used as a verb. He rewards those who earnestly seek him in verse 6. But go back to chapter 10 and look at verse 35, and here's the same word, reward, used in a different way than noun usage. Look what it says. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now get this. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. What's he talking about? That's the Bema seat. Don't give up. Live in light of the Bema seat. Live in light of the fact that you're going to give account of yourself as a believer for the works done in the body. It should be the very basis of your faith. 
in fact, to, divine, to, to de define faith, it's like this. I believe that he will reward those who diligently seek him, who apprehend him by faith, who keep seeking, who live a life now saying, you know what? The things of this world will pass away, even though they're alluring and nice and comfortable. I've got to seek a city whose builder and maker is God. I've got to live out farther than just this. In fact, go to the 11th chapter and go to the 26th verse, and here's Moses' example, and here's the same word again. We closed with this last week. But please get this. It says, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. What did he do? He made a conscious choice based on what? Based on his understanding of the Bema seat. He said this, Yeah, the pleasures of Pharaoh's court. The, the glories of living life in the, as the king of Egypt, all the beautiful women, all of the luxuries, all of the things that I could possibly have. But he said this. He regarded that disgrace for Christ as greater value than that because he was looking ahead to his what? His reward. He looked ahead to his reward. The very basis of our faith should be that we will give account of ourselves before God, and we'll be rewarded for self-denial, for making choices, a value system, putting the Word of God ahead of the world, of realizing that payday is not now. Do you know what? I'm going to get onto this in a minute, my conclusion in particular, but do you know one of the greatest heresies in the church of Jesus Christ today? You know what it is, friends? That payday is now. They, listen, you want to market? You listen to any teacher that tells you, you do this, and God's going to give you all this now. My friends, there's two things wrong with that. Number one, he's already given us his son. If somebody gave you a billion dollars tax-free, wouldn't you feel a little weird about going back up and asking him to borrow the car, his car? He's given us his son for our sins. But the second thing is this. People are trying to tell you this. You give money and you're going to get back right now. Now, you know what? There is some truth there, but I will challenge you right now. The overwhelming promise is this. At the Bema, you will be richly rewarded for the way you give your money. Or you sacrifice for some cause. And what's going to happen is God's going to bless you. Hey, listen, you turn on channel 40, you know, send this money to God. Here's God's address. And it's got that guy's name on it. And my, my friends, the point here is this. On that day, 2 Timothy 4, 6 says, on that day, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. On that day, there's a day coming when God rewards you. There's a day coming when you receive the crown. There's the emphasis is this. We're not always going to get it. You read Hebrews chapter 11. You know what it says? A lot of them died without getting what they thought they were going to get, but they kept looking forward to the promise. And now they got it because this world wasn't even worthy of them. What a way to live. This thing is so exciting to think about this. Hey, everything I do, every decision I make, every person I talk to, all that I do in my life, it's the privilege to be able to lay up rewards in heaven. Foundational to our faith. Now, not only is the foundational faith, but I want you to see something else which shows you um, uh, how foundational. Let's go to Matthew in the, in the sixth chapter. Turn over to Matthew chapter six. You talk about a purpose to live. You talk about a reason to be alive. It is exciting to consider the biblical view of life from this perspective. Look what he says. Jesus is talking here in Matthew chapter 6 and starting with verse 19. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, listen, friends, the Bible commands you in verse 20 to lay up treasures in heaven. It's a command. We are commanded to live lives laying up treasures in heaven. But secondly, I want you to notice something which is a little shocking. The Bible commands you to lay up treasures in heaven for yourself. That's what it says. Lay up treasures in heaven for yourself. There is this attitude today in Christian circles that has been so unbiblical, and I'm telling you, here's the most guilty guy. I had it for years. That pious sort of attitude that says, well, I just serve the Lord because I love Him, and I don't expect anything in return. My friends, great. I, I love the Lord too, and you love the Lord, and we ought to serve Him because we love Him, but do you know that the motivation in Philippians 2.16 of Paul wanting the Philippians to grow and to be unified and to get along and to further the cause of Christ was that on the day of Christ he would not have run or labored in vain. And do you know that there is a tremendous honor if we were to give an award to somebody, if the, the giver of the award is an honor for him to give that award. In other words, it brings glory to God. You have fought the good fight. You have kept the faith. Well done, my good and faithful servant. God rejoices in that. We always think of, well, I can't wait to hear those words. That would be nice. But the fact is, for his sake, in other words, for his glory, that's why it's so wonderful. And the thing that is so amazing that I want you to understand is this. We're commanded to lay up treasures for ourselves. Make decisions. They go like this. Hey, I desire rewards on that day. What the Bible is saying here is this. The way you live here and now does one, you either lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, or you're storing up wrath against the day of wrath. Something amazingly struck me this week. I looked up the word in Matthew 6.19 for store up or lay up. Guess what it is? It's the exact same Greek word as Romans 2.5, which says you're storing up wrath against the day of wrath. You know what it means? This Listen, unbelievers, by the way they live, forsaking God and keeping Him out of their life and not doing anything but living selfishly. And what can I do? What are my plans for today? My plans for today is to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And guess what happens? The Bible says it's like putting into a bank account. Every day, you're putting up money. It's, it's rising, it's rising, it's rising. And what is it? Wrath. The wrath of God is building and building and building. On the day of judgment, it'll be so fearful and terrible to stand before a holy God with your sins not paid for. That's what Romans 6, or Revelation 6 talks about. May the mountains fall on us, anything but hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne. But for the believer, get this, for the believer, every day as you do biblical things and think biblically and act biblically and say, God, help me, and as you struggle but you get back up and as you fight the good fight of faith, guess what happens? You're laying up in a bank account, storing up the exact same word, treasures in heaven. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing. In fact, while we're on this, flip over real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to show you something. 1 Timothy, in the 6th chapter, and here is the same Greek word found again about storing up, putting it to the bank. And look what it says. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, starting in verse 17, please get this. 1 Timothy 6, and starting with verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, you get the emphasis there? This present world. Now, the here and now. Not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. It comes and goes so quickly. But Psalm 49 says it flies away like it has wings. We could ask Donald Trump if that's somewhat true. 
get this, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Now get this, if you're if you if you do good, if you're rich in good deeds, if you're generous and willing to share, get this. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Same word. Same word. As you do good, as you share your wealth, as you do those kinds of things, my friends, guess what happens? You're laying up treasures for yourself in the coming age. What would it be like to be a Christian that had fame and fortune in this life, but was selfish with your possessions and die. And as you stand and start eternity, your everything is reversed. The first have been made last, and the last have been made first, which is what that passage is talking about. But how much for us that have been blessed with the riches of America to be able to share and to give away and to sacrifice and not go for the greed of all the materialistic ways. Listen, how great will it be to stand before God and he'll say, well done, you shared your wealth. Here are more. Here's more for you. Did you know this, friends? Americans spend 30% of their income on luxury items. 40 years ago, we spent 10% on luxury items. 477% increase since 1970 on spending on recreation. In the last 17 years, giving in evangelical churches has gone down steadily. Almost half of all charitable giving in the United States come from households making under $30,000 a year. We've just got this thing all backwards. We've got that real life is going to be getting these things. Real life is giving away, willing to share, being willing to, to do good for others. So if you were to say to me, Pastor, how can I practically speaking lay up treasures in heaven? How can I know? Well, listen, do good. Share your wealth. Sacrifice for others. By the way, you see that we're not too far off Philippians. What's Philippians about? Unity, esteeming others better than yourself, not being selfish. Remember? That's where we came out of chapter 2. And there it is again. Share. Give away. In fact, to even see more, how can you lay up treasures in heaven? By the way, there is so much. I'm, I want to just tell you, there is no way... One or two messages can cover all of this. That's how much the New Testament talks about it. I, I, I'm amazed. Go to just, but we're going to try to just start on it today. All right. So go over to Luke 14. I want you to see this. Over to Luke in the 14th chapter. Luke chapter 14. Now, this is amazing to me. Are you ready? In the 14th chapter, it says in the first verse, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a, I'm reading from the NIV now, prominent. Pharisee, please get this, prominent Pharisee, that's the key word there, okay? Now, he goes to the house and he talks, okay, and he, and he does a healing, he does a little healing there, okay? <laughs> now, not to make it unimportant, but I'm trying to move down here to get to the text, okay? Look at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Now get this, for everyone 
who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, what's he talking about? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Bema Seed Judgment. Now, you say, Kim, aren't you reading into this? You're getting a little ridiculous now, Kim. You're reading everything, Bema. You're seeing Bema everywhere. No, no, no. This is here. This is right here. I'll show you how we know that. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his hosts, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your neighbors. If you do, they may, get this, get this now, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Please get this, the last verse, 14. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's that talking about? The bema. At the judgment, you'll be repaid. Listen, do you want to lay up treasures in heaven? Then get this. Be rich in good works. Be generous and willing to share. Don't seek prominent places. In societal situations, lower yourself. Put yourself back. Let others bring you up. Let God exalt you in due time. Seek the lowest place. By the way, what is Philippians talking about? The same thing. The same thing. Listen, do nice things. Sacrifice for those who cannot repay you. Go out of your way to help the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor. Go out of your way to give people. Listen, not just financially now. Not just financially. Yes, yes, financially, but not just financially. How about this? Who do you talk to after church? Remember how it was in school? Everyone made fun of the person that was sort of down and out. You always wanted to seek friends with the cheerleaders or this person or that person. With me, it was the cheerleaders. I don't want to be my friends. But you see, what is it? We, a whole attitude of life ought to be this. Give myself to those people who need me. Give myself to those people who are down and out. Not to those people, hey, if I talk to this guy and work the right deal, I bet you my business will really boom. Hey, I bet you I can work this out where, you know, such and such. I mean, I'll be friends with them. I'll get in the right circles. And then bang, 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 up, 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 I'll go. No. The scripture says this. You want to lay up treasures in heaven? Do good to those who can't repay you. And here it is. Think of this. You give a cup of water in his name. And he'll remember it. If he's going to remember a cup of water in his name, he's going to remember when you go out of your way to love and invite over and minister to people who are down and out. That, I'll tell you, that excites me, and at the same time, it just rebukes me. James chapter 2 is so true for all of us, where we, you know, say to the, to the rich, oh, hey, you know, got a place for you right here. How you doing, buddy? Good friend. And we say, hey, man, get lost. I, I'm busy over here. I got some real ministry. We've got to be careful here, friends. So listen, that's one way you can lay up treasures in heaven. Now you want to see something else? You've got to go back to Matthew 6. Go back right to where we were, back to Matthew 6. And see this. In Matthew 6, this is again amazing. Look what he says. In Matthew chapter 6, here's how you, by the way, remember what we just read? In Matthew 6, 19, it says this. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Remember that? Okay, let's go back to verse 1 now. Go back to verse 1. It says this. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Wait, what's he talking about? Bema. He's talking about the Bema here. Why do you think Matthew 6, 19 and 20 says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? The way you live, you're storing it up. Here's one way. Don't 
do acts of righteousness, in particularly here, the way you give. Don't do it so everyone knows about it. Do it in secret. Now please get this. Look at verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. You know the old story. Here's poor old Rob Hawes. We all know Rob's hurting, but you know. Hey, Rob, here, I know you've had some trouble. I want you to give this to everybody. You see this? Here you go. You know, I wanted to see it. Okay. Or, you know, here comes the offering, here comes the offering plate. Throw it in. You know how it is. Now, I'm making fun of something, but you know what? You all know that we like to let people in on that stuff. We like to let people know. Yeah, well, yeah, I, uh. Yeah, the $17,000 offering, you know, I was there that Sunday when it came in for the building fund. So make your giving secret, because look at the last verse. It says this, verse 4, verse 4, last verse of that section. It says this, so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So give secretly. You want to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven? Give so that the only person that knows about it is God. How about this? Verse 5 and forward about prayer. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and the street corners as they're seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Bema! You know, we've all done this. And I told you about my friend who named his bed the Word. He would say, yeah, I spent four hours in the Word this afternoon. Do you know what the people... We all do this about prayer. How are you? What are you doing? Oh, I've just been praying, you know. We talk about that. We drop our little secrets about our, our prayer cards, our list, this kind of stuff, and make ourselves look as if we're really doing Hey, here's what it means. Give, pray, and one last thing, when you fast. Look at verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. You know when it comes to prayer, when it comes to giving, when it comes to fasting, you know what it says? They receive their reward in full. You know what your reward is? If you do the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, fasting, prayer, and giving, if you do those kind of things in order for men, guess what? There is some reward in it, and that is this. People will think you're pretty cool, and that's it. You've lost it in heaven. We're going to talk in the next couple of weeks about what there's like... Twelve verses I have found about what you do to lose your reward. Here's one of them right here. You've lost your reward at the Bema by being so pious in front of other people. So here's the point, though. Listen, it's very interesting. How, but we're talking positively here today. How can you lay up? Well, give, pray, and fast, and don't let anybody know about it. Now, that, that is, there's something very interesting I want you to see here. Look, uh, look over to chapter 5 in Matthew 5, right there, and, and look down with me to verse 14, and it says this. Because this is an important distinction that needs to be made. Verse 14 of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, look at verse 16, says this. Let your light shine before men. Let people see your good works. Now, go to chapter 6 and verse 1, and look what it says. It says this. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Now, all of us could go like this. Wait a minute, what's he saying? 
In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, don't let your light shine before men. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, don't let anyone see it. Here's the difference. The quality of life that the Beatitudes call for is the kind of life that shows forth Christ and is to be revealed to the world. For instance, being poor in spirit, being a peacemaker, being meek, doing righteousness and hungering and thirsting for it. Those are the type of things that the Beatitudes talk about that are to be seen by the world. But what is to not be seen by the world and not to be shown off in any way are the Christian disciplines. I have found, I've wondered often, why is it that I have found when I have really had a hot time in devotions for a period of time that when I've shared that with people, I've always lost it? There are things that you don't talk about. And one of them is, be careful. I mean, we ought to share in principle and and, and things, what's going on in in our giving, in our private life, things. But we've got to be so careful lest we lose the reward. So I, I want you to see that. Now, I'm going to close. We, we've basically just done two things so far, and now we're ready to close. Number one, we've said this. We've said that the Bema is foundational to our faith and to our whole Christian life. Number two, we've said, how can we lay up some treasures in heaven? Well, be rich, be willing to share. Don't be rich. Be, be, be rich in good works. Be willing to share and take the lowest place in societal situations. Do nice things for those who can't repay you. Do your Christian disciplines in secret. These are just some. There's much more. These are just some. But... Let me ask you this. We considered last week the criterion of judgment for the great white throne. Let's consider now, just just to introduce it, just to get a taste in our mouth, the two basic principles for the criterion of judgment at the Bema Seat. They are found first in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 32, and you can turn there if you'd like. And the other place is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Now, there are two things here I want you to get. Uh, without taking the time to read the passage in Matthew 25, if you turn there, starting with verse 14, he's the parable of the talents. He gives one man five talents, one man two talents, and one man one talent. He comes back after a long journey, and the man with five talents has five more talents. The man with, and gives them back, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of the Lord. He takes the man with two talents, who gives back two more, and he says, well done. He gives the same commendation to the man that gave back five than the guy that gave back two. He comes to the man that had one and who hid it out of fear and said, I know you're a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, which shows you a wrong view of God that somehow the Bema seed is going to be intolerable is a, is a wrong perspective there, for sure. Uh, but anyway, I want you to, the whole picture is this. It would, don't you think you should have told the story like this? Now, not that I need to correct Jesus, but if I did, I would say, here's one place he made a mistake. Now, you know I'm being facetious, okay? I said, Jesus, you should have had the story go like this. The guy with the five talents blows it. And the guy with the two talents and the one talent. You know, that's the thing. But why does Jesus tell us that the guy with the one talent blows it? I'm going to tell you why. Because of this, the criterion for judgment at the Bema Seat will not be based on what you, excuse me, it will be based on the faithful use of what you have been given, not on the amount of what you've been given. And the clearest way to illustrate that is to show the guy that has the one as being the wicked man. Because we would all take pity on that guy. We would say, oh, this poor guy didn't have much. The fact is, nobody can say they can't be used of God. Nobody can say, well, what I have isn't important. In fact, it's even right in here in the church newsletter. I read it this morning. I love this church newsletter. It says, if you think you're too small to do a big thing, try doing small things in a big way. Who's that? 
And the fact here is this. It's not, you've heard it all your life, God is not looking for ability, but for availability. You know, that's true. He just wants us to use what he's given us. You will not, get this, I am so glad to know this. You will not be judged by comparison with others, but with what you did with what you had. I am so glad. He's not going to say, all right, it's time for judgment. Uh, all right, the preachers of the 1990s, uh, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Charles Stanley, James Kennedy, Kim Coffin, will you please take the stand? Now we're going to see, of these five, who did the best? Oh, no. You see, it'd be terrible. But see, that's why the scripture is clear at the Bema. Each man will give account of himself to God. You'll be judged for what you have done with what God has given you, not with how successful your life has been, such and such. This gets to the last point. And the last point is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Real quickly, this is the famous passage. I want you to show you one phrase out of this. And remember, we're going to continue this study now in the weeks ahead. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the Bema. He talks about the gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And get this, look at the last part of verse 13. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Number one, you won't be judged upon uh, how much you've been given will be judged by what you have done with what you have been given. Number two, the criterion for judgment of the Bema seat will be quality, not quantity. He's not going to stand up and say, all right, all the people with churches over 500 are, are going to get this reward. No, because it's not quantity, it's quality. Now listen, that's important to understand. Jesus said this, I love this story. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is there. He goes into the synagogue and he purposely sits across the place where people are giving money. And he sits there and he watches. And his disciples are all sitting there. Just imagine now. I picture Jesus sitting there. The disciples are sitting around him and he's watching. And he's watching intently. What's happening? Here comes some rich people. Here comes some more rich people. All of a sudden, here comes the little old lady with the two mites. And she walks up and she throws in however she does it. Her point. And he goes, hey, fellas, fellas, come here. Come here. Gather around. Did you see that? You go, what? Did you see what happened? I want you to know she has given more than anyone else. What do you mean she gave more? That poor old lady? She gave all that she had. Aren't you glad, friends? Aren't you glad the judgment is based upon the quality of life, not the quantity that you have? We've got to remember when we stand before him that that is going to be the case. Listen. I talked to a man this week that knew a man that ministered to the Cree Indians in Canada for 30 years. After 30 long years of faithful ministry, he had his first convert. I know of places in South America where people lead 30 people to Christ a week. But you know what? The judgment will not be based upon quantity, but upon quality. It's not that the guy that led 30 to Christ is going to get a less judgment. I'm just saying... God knows the field, God knows the heart, and the test will be quality. I heard a story of a missionary in Africa who was a faithful, hardworking translator, and every year he got totally embarrassed. You know why? He had to turn in his status reports. And it said this, how many people have you led to Christ? How many people have you baptized? How many people have you done all this? And all I can tell you is this, friends. You cannot put on paper what the Bema Seat will really be about. 
Because we don't know. It's a matter, we do know this, it's a matter of quality. I said earlier, all theology that's bad tells you that the payday is now. No, there's a payday coming then. You know what? The Bible says things like this. Are you suffering? Well, consider this. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall follow. Don't you love that? Your friends, uh, my accountability partner and I met this week uh, for breakfast, um, this little men's group that we have going, we have accountability partner. He made an amazing statement in light of all this. The Bible says this, The eye hath not seen, neither has the ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Heaven is so fantastic. I've had such a boring view of heaven in most of my life. Think of this. The eye hath not seen. The angels must think this. These people that are loving the world and really into this world, they are so sick. That's what they must be thinking. Because heaven is so fantastic. The light waves, we can only see a certain spectrum of light waves. Can you imagine being in heaven? The eye hath not seen. You cannot imagine how beautiful heaven is. It could be a whole other spectrum of vision and sight that we can't even begin to imagine. <laughs> or how about this? The ear hath not heard. You know, I can blow a dog whistle and the dog would come running, but none of you would even hear it. Imagine music that takes a full spectrum, bigger than we've ever even known in our life, and the beauty of it. Maybe there I could be a musician. Or how about this? Neither has entered into the heart of man. You ought to leave here this morning, after you go to Sunday school, you ought to leave here this morning so fired up that you have a God that as you have trusted Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him, and you live by faith in that Christ, as you just go out and just love him and obey him and just say, I want to put you first, just lead my life, take control of me, and whatever I do, I just want to do for you and follow the scriptures, make your decisions in line to that. There is an eternity with incredible, indescribable beauty and rewards and a life of existence that is so much superior that we're going to look back now and say, why were we ever even tempted in this stupid life? I tell you, this thing has got me on fire. It is, God has just been inscribing this in my heart. I'm excited about living. I'm excited about uh, 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 considering what, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. In light of all that the scripture says about the Bema. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for the love that you've shown us in your Son, Christ. And we are thankful, Father, that we know that why we are here, we've been created by you, and we're going a place. We're going, ultimately, to heaven. We're going to the day of judgment when we find out what we really were like. I pray that you would motivate Christians in this church as a result of what's been said to change their life so that they put Christ where he needs to be so that there would be a decision making and, and a, a giving of effort, time, and money to those things which will lay up treasures in heaven. Start with me, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Expository Word. We hope you will join us here again for more messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.